Hey, dealmakers, welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. In this episode, we have a fascinating guest, Robert Martinez, who's the head of uh, Rockstar Capital. And, and, and the reason it was so fascinating is he was recently in the news about a property that he lost in foreclosure, and you maybe maybe seen some of them. So we got him to agree to speak to us. I think it's the first time he's ever gone onto, onto a podcast, and it's a bit longer than normal. But man, he really goes into detail about what happened. And I think it's going to be a really interesting, fascinating look at what's going on behind the scenes right now. And to some degree, how challenging it is right now for anyone who's bought anything over the last 12 to 18 months. And as it turns out, Robert is actually, his company has been around for a long time. He's got a deep operational experience. And even for as experienced as Robert's company is, it still went sideways despite a lot of his best efforts. So you're going to get an inside look at behind the, the scenes of what happened and how this thing came about. Really interesting. Before we get into that interview, I want to do a shout out to Boss Dog, who left us a review on Amazon for the Yellow Book. This book was well worth the money. It was very well written and easy to follow. Well, thank you so much, boss. I really appreciate that. If you haven't read the yellow book yet, do so on Amazon. It's called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing, just like the name of this podcast. So check that out as well. We always have some success highlights, people who are doing a deal that are somehow influenced and helped by us in some way, maybe even just a yellow book. This one is first-time dealmaker Guy Labrusiano, and he closed his first deal, a 60-unit deal in Saginaw, Michigan. $3 $3 million was his first deal. He was uh, working with an, in our mentoring program with Brad Tasha. Brad, great guy. He's been, he was our first mentor Like we came on board. I think we looked at it in 2017, he's coming, and he's just so successful in helping people do his first deal and become financially free. So Brad, thank you for that contribution and congrats, Guy, on your first deal as well. So we're going to get right into the interview here today because it's a bit longer and I don't want to miss any part of it. So let's get right into the interview with Robert Martinez. Robert, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure. Yeah. So, man, you, we, we just met because you know I, I've heard about you and, and the stuff that you've been accomplishing in the industry for a while, and I was like, you know, I've never, never really reached out and, and met this guy. And there's an article which we'll get into later that that kind of prompted me to do so. But I've just been hearing you doing huge things in the multifamily space. How did you get into this? Yeah, you know, it's funny because nobody comes out of the womb knowing real estate, you know. So my mom and my dad were everyday people. My dad worked at Whataburger for over 40 years until he passed away. My mother worked at Levi's and Hager's. And when those got went south to, during NAFTA, went to Mexico, you know, she got retrained and, and went back to college and then worked for the school district. So my parents' dream was just, hey, go to college. Like I would have been a first generation to go to college. And I was like, okay, so we focused on that because those are your first mentors. And they tell you to do that. Then your next mentors are who? Your professors. So I go to school, get good grades, went to Texas A&M University, have an engineering degree. And of course, what do they do? They tell you to go out and get a good job. And so I went out there and for 10 years, I was in engineering. I, I did engineering sales, which means I didn't have a 4.0. I had something like a 3.0, 2.830. And so I, they threw me out there into the sales force. And I did it for 10 years. And I, I had a good time. I, I was I was proficient at it, but it was never going to give me the life that I wanted, you know, and as you all know, in corporate America, that's where you started out. There's always, there's always cuts. 
There's always ways to be more profitable. And who do you try to cut first? It's the sales guys. They're making too much money. The accountants that have to write the checks, they don't like the sales guys because they see them come in, they see them leave. They don't know it's the sales guys that keep the light bulbs on. And after maybe the second or the third time of a transition at the company I was with, ownership changes, I got tired of my commission getting cut and they giving it to the new guy who didn't have anything and they had to try to you know help him out. And I realized that I didn't have control of my financial future. It was, a, it was an epiphany. My boss did, which meant that he would have control of when I was going to retire, the kind of lifestyle I'm going to lead, the kind of school my kids are going to go to. And I didn't want that. I wanted that back. So back in 2006, 2007, I started to look around for other ways of income. I found a childcare facility. I found a, a washeteria, a laundromat, even a coin-operated water business. And I looked into these. I studied them. Maybe this is, maybe this is what I can do. And then I heard a crazy guy on the radio in Houston, here in Houston named Dell Wamsley, and he has a uh, real estate program in Houston. It had been around a long time. It's like, you know what? After listening to him during my, during my sales calls, I'm in the car all the time, driving from one customer to another. I decided I would go to this real estate club. And I went in there and I paid 500 bucks and I did the two-day boot camp and I was blown away. I was hearing things that I'd never heard of in college, never heard of from any of my mentors. It was a different way of thinking. And so the first day was single family. And when I left there, man, I thought I knew everything. Man, this was a great all day Saturday boot camp. I'm gonna be the single family king. I'm gonna go buy a bunch of a, par- a bunch of houses. I learned how to rent them, and we learned how what improvements to make, you know, not to keep it on the market too long. Okay, great. So I'm gonna join this class and I'm gonna I'm gonna spend a, I'm gonna write a ten thousand dollar check to join. Now that's a lot of money. And my wife at the time says, well, you're not going to spend that kind of money without me. So she came back with me on Sunday and we both got exposed to multifamily. And I'm like, geez, I mean, I'm an engineer by trade. A dollar is a dollar. But in commercial real estate, a dollar is not a dollar. A dollar divided by a five cap is $20. A dollar divided by a six cap is $17. And I'm like, man, I get that. How come I never learned that formula? I never was exposed to any kind of real estate valuation, commercial real estate valuation. So I fell in love right there, like this is what I'm gonna do. And so she let me write that check and I went to the first meetings and I swear to you, it was like a rich dad, poor dad book come to life. Everybody's there in this club. Everybody wants to buy real estate. Everybody's talking to everybody else to see where they're from. And I'm watching these guys that are on the stage presenting their case studies. And I'm like, man, that is awesome. Look at these guys. They're everyday guys like me. Why can't I do that? So I educated myself in the club. I did all the required reading, all the required classes that they had. And then I met up with a partner and he and I went and started to buy deals together. He was from London. He had moved here a year earlier. We joined the club in January of 07 at the same time. And he had a big balance sheet. And I was just the local sales guy. I was the guy that knew the area. So we had a business relationship, but he was the GP. I didn't share in any of that. I was the operating arm, but I didn't share in any of the equity. I was just, you know, an LP like everybody else. But I was the LP like, I can't give you $200,000 of my money because I don't know you. So I need to work with you. So. By April, 
So we we worked together looking for deals. I remember driving the car, learning the markets of Houston, which submarkets to invest in, which not. Finally bought a deal in December of 07. I worked it every day. I sat in that chair. I took the role of an assistant manager. I leased apartments. I knocked on doors, collect rent, which means that I got lied to and I heard every story on why they can't pay rent. I walked make readies. I got involved with the rehab. I'm like, man, this is amazing. Next thing you know, guys, I'm there every day. I'm ignoring my day job. I'd make whatever required calls I had and I'm ignoring my job. And so I remember my, my sales forecast was due in December. I didn't turn it in. It was due in January. I found a reason to not give it back. And until April, they finally said, okay, I need to see your sales plan for 2008. And I, instead, I gave her my resignation notice. And I said, man, I have found my calling. I love multifamily real estate. I love this. And you know what the craziest thing is? He almost cried because I was following my dream. And he goes to me, he goes, you know, I don't like what I do. This is my sales manager. I don't like what I do. I wish I could be you. I wish, I mean, you seem so excited about this career in real estate. You know what I like? I like cows. I have a small ranch and I love nothing more than to be out there by myself with my cows, but I can't do it. It doesn't pay enough. And I'm like, wow, there was literal pain in this guy's eyes because he wasn't following what he wanted. And I was convicted that I knew this is what I'm going to do. So in April of 08, I quit my day job, went full, full time, took a pay cut. I was making about a buck 50 at that time. This is in 2008. So it's quite a bit of money back then to go down to making 36,000 because that's what my cut of the management fee was. And we worked it by December of 07. We bought our first big deal, which was 238 units. Then by August of 08, we're buying a hundred and a little over a hundred units got wiped out by the hurricane, got completely rebuilt later. And then our biggest deal was a property called Casa Verde in November. And that was something like, I don't know, 300 and change. And that's when I learned economies of scale. That's when I learned it like these big properties are like battleships and it takes a lot. It takes a village to run these. And just to make the occupancy move up, it takes a lot of movements. And it's where I learned that real estate is easy but people are difficult. It is very, very difficult running a larger deal. I had a lot of success early on with my small deals. So anyway, fast forwarding, he and I went on for the next three years and we bought 2000 units. We had a falling out as a, as a partnership and I cut ties with him. And in March of 2010, I went on to start Rockstar Capital. And people ask, well, where'd you get the name Rockstar? And I go, well, that was like a euphemism back then. I would always, when somebody was doing a great job, I'd say, man, you're such a rock star. You're such a rock star. And it was an expression I used all the time in my previous company where I was, I was the operating arm of a, you know, you know, COO of a 2000 unit portfolio that we built from 2007 to, to the beginning of 2011. So I adopted that name. I brought it over and we started buying deals and I started buying small deals, a hundred. And I mean, small for me is a hundred unit deals, hunger unit, a hundred, 118, 126, 108. Then move it a little bit more, 152, 162. And then I started slowly one deal a year. See, today I have 23 assets, but I bought those early deals one deal a year. One deal, because I would put everything I could into it. I try to hold 90% for 90 days, get the refinance product, and then start moving on to another deal. I didn't leave my deals early. 
So I started very slow. And what do you do when you start slow? You learn things. You're sitting in that chair. You're listening to the leasing agents or the assistant managers on the phone talking to prospects. You're giving them that sales training that they need, right? Because in every one of these investments, right, you have to understand if you have the scratch to sign on the notes, you're probably the smartest guy in the room. So you got to trust yourself. I trust on my sales background that I have for 10 years working with other salesmen that I would be their sales manager and I would teach them how to do apartments. So I did that. And over the next 10 years, we went on to buy, you know, I mean, I bought uh, over four or 5,000 units. I became a two-time national owner of the year. My management company, Rockstar Capital, went on to win 19 city state national apartment association awards, including the 2019 property of the year, national property of the year. And my biggest fame is that I've raised $180 million in private equity, but I've returned $132 million of people's money. I've done 15 100% refinance events, 15, 100 times out. I've done two more that I had to do in the last year because of the Fed's moves. There were strategic refis, which didn't result in 100%, but when that when the market was in the right direction up, yeah, I, I, I knew how to buy deals, right? Because I've learned anybody can buy a deal, but it's what happened after the ink dries that matters. And I felt that I'm one of the premier operators in the country. And so at the beginning of the year, you know, we had 24 deals, just under 4,900 units, but the Fed's moves caught me. And, and the first time in my career, I wound up losing a deal. I literally bought this deal the day before the very first rate hike. And, you know, if you all remember when the, when the Fed's moving these, the rate hikes, nobody knew what was going on. And anybody that tells you that they knew there would be 11 consecutive rate hikes is full of shit. I don't care who they are. Oh, everybody knew. No, they didn't. You know who didn't know? My mortgage broker didn't know. The lender themselves didn't know. The credit agency that they hired to put my investment to a COO didn't know where they put all the debt together. So don't tell me that you knew because if you knew, then why did you put money into the deal? We didn't know. And I got caught on that. I, I read a book by Tim Fertitta called Shut Up and Listen. And he has an expression in there that says, there is a paddle waiting for everybody. And he said, my paddle is extra big. So I do everything I can to make sure that that paddle never reaches me. And I, and I wish I had read that book earlier. I wish I had known then what I know now. Because I think what happens for a lot of guys is when they see a challenge like that, it's just like that email you see in your inbox. There's one in, there, in all y'all's inbox that's been there for weeks and months that you haven't attacked because you don't know how. You don't know how. And once you do attack it, you're like, wow, that wasn't so bad. Well, I think that's what happened in the real estate market when the Fed started raising rates. People were just trying to, they didn't know, they, they were like ostriches in the sand. They put in their head down, not knowing what to do, scared in the fetal position in the closet, you know, not knowing what to do. And, what did you, what know, did you for, start to do? What did I start? So, you know, it, it's interesting. At that time, I still had my management company. But the mistake that I made the last couple three years is that is that yeah the the, the mistake that, that I made in the last couple of years was that I brought on people into my management company and I gave them too much uh, authority and responsibility, and as I did that, we started to lose the culture that I had built the previous years, the culture that won all the awards that's in the lobby, that two-time national owner of the year, all those property of the years, that culture was decimated over the next 18, 24 months to where when this was going on, I'm like, man, I cannot win with this group. I need to go with a big company. So I was in Grant Cardone's program. 
I met him a few years back. And I only like to take advice from people that are where I want to be. And Grant was using RPM, the company that he recommended, for all his deals. I'm like, wow, that must be great. I vetted them. I go, here are my concerns. I have recruiting concerns. I have concerns with, with my accounting. I have concerns with, you know, rising costs, insurance. Do you think y'all can help me? Oh, yeah, we hear this is. We got 200,000 units. You know, we do all the grant deals. It didn't play out like that. Mm. So I went to them thinking that I, I would get help, and I didn't. What actually happened is that my expenses ballooned. And I realized something was wrong come December because the Fed wasn't stopping. And I'm like, the only way I'm going to survive this is if I take property management back. So in December, I started looking and bringing on people that had worked with me in the past that I would vouch for. Like they were my step group. These were guys that were regionals or property managers with me that had been successful, that had turned deals around. And I started that, that plan. Michael. Robert, why did you, why did you stop self-managing? I, I know you said that the culture you know, had changed, but obviously bringing yeah. a third-party manager wouldn't solve that problem at all. Well, Why it's like you... I said, Mike, real estate's easy. People are difficult. I had brought in a group of people where it just really burnt me out, you know, of, of dealing with it all the time. And, you know, when I was given the advice from Grant that they could solve some of those problems, like, man, this would be great. It's I, the easy I button. A, I, I, I had a succession plan with them. I could focus on on still asset management. I can focus on buying other deals, you know, down the line. And I just think it was a little perfect storm of the wrong things. You know, you in addition, what's really hurting the market is not just interest rates, but it's rising taxes and rising insurance, especially in those coastal properties that Southwest United States. Throw in the fact that employment is not what it was prior to COVID. Like I'm sure you guys have seen it in y'all's businesses, right? Or you've seen it at your at your favorite restaurant. The quality of employee is not the same as what it was before. So all of those factors are just, you know, we just came off of COVID. We had just come off of a of a major ice storm where we had to go and, and have big insurance, you know, claims and whatever. There was a lot going on. I thought that it would give me that time that I needed to to space. Cause when you've been doing nonstop property management for, for 15 years you know, it will eventually take a toll. I think also that I lost some key people along the way that had been there with me in the trenches, had learned. And when they left, a lot of that culture left with them. And it was really hard to rebuild. So yeah, so I went out to there it. and I brought in. Yeah, you brought in because it, it, was a, it was a way to solve that and take a lot of headache off. And, and what yes. you found instead is it, it while it took the people problem off your plate, it uh, introduced a whole another whole nother level of financial problems, which was exasperated by the rise in interest rates. Yeah, I think when you get with a big management company and anybody listening or any management company, don't ever think that they're only there to make their property management fee because they're not. They're there to make money. That is a for-profit business. So the bigger the company, the more the overhead. And they're going to throw in cost adders that are not already in your expense model. I run lean. I do everything in-house. That was not their model. When you self-manage, you typically, it's not really a, a for-profit business when you're, when you're doing right. that, right? It's, it's That's there exactly right. I, I didn't make a lot of money in my management company. Especially, yeah. you do in the beginning when you're small. I made plenty. Mm -hmm. There was enough in the fees. When you try to get scale, right, you want to use your money to bring in other quality people so you can keep scaling higher IQs, higher, bigger resumes, but never, ever, ever forget in that time, there's a lesson that I learned that you trust a resume over your own instinct and your own gut. 
Don't think that because somebody was working at a 20 or 30,000 unit portfolio that they're better or smarter than you. You're the one that signed on the dotted line. You're the one that came with that scratch and that scratch came from somewhere and it came from a lot of good things happening right. So put yourself in a position to sign on a multi-million dollar deal. And that was the mistake that I, I did, I think. And so when I went on to, to the third-party management company, I could see the things that they were doing wrong. Like, wait, what? Why are you doing this? Why are you charging for that? What's it? But they have it embedded. You have to go digging. You have to ask. They don't tell you. One of the big ones was employment. You know, there was a huge overhead burden that they would throw into my, into my payroll. I went with them thinking that, okay, you're going to solve my, my employment problems because I couldn't have enough people to fill holes in my business. And they didn't, they made it worse. They, they did not yeah. help that. I, I wound up learning that there was only one recruiter for the entire portfolio of Houston that they had. Uh -huh. And I'm like, wow. So when I took back management, I had 30. And so when you don't have people, what happens? You got to go to temporary help. You have to outsource things. So your, all your expenses go up because you don't have enough people in the chair to help you with these. So when I took it back, within 30 days, I filled 35 holes. Wow. Within That's 60 bad. days now, within 60 days, I came back. I brought, I eliminated contract services. We do everything in-house now outside of like carpet changeouts. We paint. And I don't do resurfacing. I think that's dangerous. I don't let my guys do that. I did that in the early days. I don't do that. We outsource resurfacing and I outsource carpet, but I don't like to outsource the make readies. If we yeah. have, have to go outsourcing make readies, it's because we have the wrong guys in-house. We have the wrong organization. We have the wrong planning. And that's for me to fix that because you should be able to get units painted. Hey, are you tired of the stock market volatility or feeling like there's more you can do with your money? Do you dream of owning your real estate but not sure where to start? Now, here's the thing. You're not alone about this, and it's not your fault. There's so many options out there from wholesaling, flipping, to landlording, and turnkeys. Like, which one should you do? Which one's right to you if you want to get into real estate? And the truth is, none of the things I just mentioned will actually make you financial free and put you on a strong financial footing. But not to worry. I have a solution for you, a new idea perhaps, if you're open to new ideas. And that is the following. That we have found that the number one way to fast track your journey to financial freedom, build wealth, and retire is through apartment building investing. Now, you're probably thinking, that's great, Michael, but I don't have the experience or the money to get into apartments. And the good news is that you don't need previous experience or a bunch of money in a bank to get started. And I can say this with confidence because we've helped so many people of all walks of life do the first deal, and become financially free. In fact, we've helped students close over $1.5 billion in real estate. Now, if you're skeptical, that's okay. Your skeptical's fine, but you're open to this new idea, then let's have a conversation. Go to themichaelblank.com forward slash call and schedule a strategy session to explore working with us like so many others have before you as well. We're really excited to guide you on this journey, and don't let fear or disbelief or what you think is possible hold you back. Remember, the only thing standing between financial freedom is action. And this is the one thing I want you to do right now is go to the michaelblank.com forward slash call and schedule that call with us. It may be the most exciting call that you'll have all year. Let's do this. I love that you're so hands-on with, with your organization, your business. I mean, it's, it's how you have to be. You have to be involved in, in every little facet and, and trying to make fine tune it and, re and really be efficient on it. Now I'm I'm curious, you know, so you're such a master operator. Uh, I can just tell what happened with this one 
that you lost. Can you tell yeah. us anything about that? that yeah, just to go back to it, a lot of guys get started with the apartments and they outsource me. They 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 go to third party management immediately. I think I'm here today because in the club that I was in, they didn't allow that. They made you quit your day job and you work this. And I believe that that's actually the way to do it. I think you should go. I quit. If you're willing to take people's money, then you can walk away from that buck 50 you were making and you can work this. That's why I went from a, from 150 down to 36,000. But it was only temporary until you buy a deal a year later, until you turn over. But you got to make that first deal count. So I think all those things there allow me to understand. And when you understand something, you can make better decisions. You can't, no third party management company is going to bullshit me and tell me this is why because I've already run it. When I go and look and you have no skins in the wall and I have skins on my wall, there, there's a problem there. So what got me on this deal was a few things. I think number one, as I said, I bought it at the wrong time. I mean, this deal gets underwritten in November, December. Remember that we closed in, in March, the day before the very first rate hike. Nobody was talking about, it. you know how I know? Cause they didn't have any kind of interest expense interest reserves. There was nothing to make them think that we had a rate cap, but when I'm getting it, I didn't, whatever. That was only the second time I'd ever purchased a rate cap. I had never been required in any other deal. So it was a concept to a lot of, a lot of syndicators, I think to a lot of operators, they were very unfamiliar with. And yeah, we had a rate cap, whatever. It wasn't very expensive. You know, and I'm like, what? Is, I don't remember what it was anymore right now. Top of my head. I know what it is now to buy. It would be like 1.4 million. But at the time, I mean, I remember I bought a deal in August the year before, and that rate cap was $40,000. And I just thought when I bought it in August, it's just a nuisance cost. These guys, whatever, just another line item on the, on the title, on the title sheet, you know, the closing statement didn't, didn't put into any idea. Never imagined that the Fed was going to raise it five and a quarter, five and a half points. Never. And again, I think if you say you did, you're lying. You're lying because nobody did. Nobody did. The smartest guys on Wall Street didn't know. The bankers didn't know. BlackRock gave back or whoever it was gave back deals. They didn't know. Nobody knew. You know. So what got me on that deal was that number one. At the same time, my insurance was seven hundred dollars a door, and when I renewed a year later, it was sixteen hundred a door. Understand this. At the same time, when rates go up, so does the cap rate. So whatever your deal was valued. At the beginning of the year, you can add two points to that cap rate. It's no more long, no longer value that. Anything that was $60 million in January of 22 is today 45 to 40, $40 million if you've done nothing because the cap rates moved against you. That's a massive, massive swing. So I think that was the biggest pieces. I think we encountered an Airbnb issue. I have a sister property that we bought which is not too far away, had done extremely well. We had bought the one I bought in August, immediately made improvements. Sorry, it was another rock star success story. Cash flowing after after the uh, second quarter, you know, boom, boom, boom. Actually, the fourth quarter, I'm sorry, first quarter. Boom, 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 big money. I'm like, okay, good. Another property opp opportunity comes in a couple streets over. I'm going to hit it. Let's go get this one. I think we all were aggressive in our, in our underwriting, not knowing what was going to happen. The bank, my, my, me as well. We were, we're near, we're near, we're near the stadium where the Texans play, NRG. And as you imagine, there's a lot of events that go on at that stadium from the Houston rodeo to whatever, you know, symposium of anything. So it was a heavy, heavy area for Airbnb. I'd run Airbnb, Airbnb in the past, never had an issue. 
We have properties that are by the airport. I we have Airbnbs. We we do it ourselves. We used to do it ourselves, right? And manage it because we're pilots and whoever else, you know, we're, we're we're renting them. Here, what I learned with Airbnb is whoever you rent it to is not the person that's gonna occupy it. And we got overloaded with Airbnbs. We had at one point, I want to say 70 Airbnbs on a 280 unit deal. It was a huge percentage. They were causing crime, they were causing issues. They were running off my good tenants. Crime was rampant in this. Now, I don't know. I, when, I don't know the people that I had with me that were, and this is my lesson is that I'll never make this mistake again. I'd always done the unit walk. And, but because I had people that I had brought on, like, oh no, we'll do it. You keep working at the office. We'll take care of it. I've done hundreds of these. I know how to do this. Like, okay. Not a one of them saw the Airbnbs. I think I, I know I didn't I know that then I would not have known what it was going to happen, but I would have seen Airbnb key signals. I would have seen the little the little uh, realtor locks on the door. I would have seen the little books that they have there when you walk in. You know, I would have noticed that the pantry had a lock on it, right, where they keep their supplies. Airbnbs are terrible for our industry. I fucking hate Airbnbs because you don't know who they're allowing into your property. You don't know. If you go to Airbnb right now on that property, you'll find what well, not anymore because I cleaned it. But there was there was prostitution. There was all kinds of craziness that were going on there. They oh don't God. care. I used to live in an A class building, and they would do they had like ten of them uh, a while ago, and they and it was terrible. Like everybody mm. hated the Airbnbs. They would noise complaints, crime because yes, they, they don't care. They don't care. There's nothing liable to them to the people that are renting them out. So you have to give lease violations to the leaseholder. You have to find them and you have to eventually have to kick them out, but you don't know because you're seeing that revenue come in. Yeah. So, you, so you had the you had the Airbnbs. So that was an issue, obviously it was jacked. That was the first time. issue that, that drove down occupancy and right. bled us sooner than what we should have been bled. And you had to get um, rid of those, those guys. So you probably yes. started doing that. And then you had to build it back up. Like you said, they're battleships. Yes. Then, then you have the insurance comes in. Remember, when you have $700 a door, that's what you're escrowing. You're not escrowing $1,600. So you have to write a check to the insurance company for that difference. Then your escrows are going to skyrocket. Where do yeah. your escrows come from? Your cash flow. So at what point, Rob, did you, were you like, you know what, this, this isn't worth doing, a, doing another cash call or doing a cash call or anything like that? This is good money after bad. Let's yeah. So let, let me write into that story. So again, I'd never seen this. I'd never been in a situation where I was having a money crunch on any deal. So I'm having to understand, okay, what I'm going to understand what's going on. I had to dissect it. Then I realized, man, I'm not going to be able to get out of this without help from the lender. So I got a hold of our mortgage broker recommended somebody, a workout specialist. Just like you've seen the movies. Have you seen, you know, Too Big to Fail and movies like that? There was workout specials working between the different banks. Yeah. So that's like what I had a lawyer or something. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And then I had to hire the real estate attorney. So it was 115000 out of my pocket that I, that I paid. And you got to get them up to speeds, look at all the financials, tell them the story. Then they got to paint a picture. Then they got to create a performa. I think you said, Gary, you've talked to one or two, right? Mm -hmm. Then they're going to contact the lender. Now, again, I didn't know who that even the lender was. I was dealing with a debt fund. So I didn't know. It wasn't like my mortgage broker knew his guy. You know, I've got loans at Key Bank. I've got loans with other big institutions, Burkadia. I know who to call. 
if I have a problem. I didn't know who to call. These guys took a minute, you know, on who to find out. And then we finally got a hold of the decision maker. We're sending proposals in. As we're sending proposals in, we're bleeding out. You know, and nothing stops the pain. And so every time we spend time and we get rejected on a proposal, we're bleeding out. And I say, you know what? I immediately increased communication with the, with my investors. And I said to them, we're, we're in trouble. Here's my plan. I'm going to hire a workout specialist. I thought it would go 30 days. It actually took the better part of 90 to 120 before something was finally uh, uh, decided. And I took the hit. So I put the 115 up, 115,000 up. As we're losing money, we're running short on our balance on the mortgage payment. The lender was very clear. If you were behind, I'm not going to work with you. Okay. Wrote my first check. Coming on the proposal, we're asking for a reduction in rate. I need short-term help. I need monthly cash flow help. I need a short-term rate help. I need it. He said no. Another proposal, we asked for a deferral to the back end. He said no. We asked for a DPO, which is a reduction of the of the balance. He said no. Now, I didn't have any COVID problems. I was fine. We had a year's worth of reserves. So I never had to go to my lender for help. I know during COVID, people went to their lender and they got deferrals, deferring the interest later on, getting some help. My guy didn't want to help with me whatsoever. And I went to two rounds of this. I had to cut into my pocket two different times for the mortgage payment. Finally, I was all in. I put 700,000 into the deal. I raised 18 million of my investors' money. I put in another 858, 858,000 of my own money, more than my original investment, to keep the deal running. In the end, the lender retraded me twice. The first time, we had agreed that I would send him the rate cap. Well, send me the rate cap, we'll have a deal. Now remember, he's giving no other concessions. He's not going to help me. But if you want to keep the deal going, you want to avoid foreclosure at this point, because, you know, once you miss a payment, they, they can call the, the, the loan due. They can call everything. They, they you never miss a payment. You have no, no power. Keep that payment going because then it starts to default into the covenants or default into special language that's in your contract, which you probably don't even know what it says. But they can accelerate all the interest. They can do all kinds of crazy stuff. Once we got into that situation, the lay had the leverage. And the first, first thing they said was, send us the rate cap, which is 1.4 million. Okay. The very, a day later, he goes, hey, man, we'd agreed. A day later, he goes, hey, man, uh, man, I'm really sorry. I talked to them. They're going to need more. Okay. What do they need? Well, they want the rate cap, but they also want 12 months reserves. Okay. All right. All right. Mm -hmm. So I went back number crunching to my proposal. Now I'll, I'll get to the end of this, Garrett, to my investors. And I say, guys, we need to raise 12 months of reserves which is about a little bit over a million and change. We need to, one and a half million, I think is what I remember. We need to raise another, I don't know what it was, million, million five, million seven for the rate cap. And I have some money in the bank. We're running out of money in the bank. We need some operating cash infusion. We have some vendors we haven't paid. They're key vendors. We got to get this taken care of or we're not going to go. So all in all, four and a half million. Had emergency calls. Remember, I've been keeping them up to date weekly on everything. So there was no surprise and say, hey, we're in trouble. We had been in trouble for the last six months. And as I wired money to the lender, they knew that. I made sure they were aware of it. I had the commitments. I had three-fourths of the money in my bank. The lender goes on a holiday. 
He's supposed to reach out to me. Doesn't reach out. Finally comes in three days later, reaches out to me. He goes, hey, man, glad you're hope back. Hope you had a great holiday. Where are we on the proposal? Yeah, about that. Okay. He goes, I've talked to everybody. We're good with the rate cap that you're going to send to us. We're good. Remember, the rate cap wasn't due for another six months. We're good with that. We're good with the. We agree with the 12 month interest number that you want to give, which actually was lower than what it actually was. I got him to agree to a lower number so I can keep more money in my account. And we're agree on But we want you to go back to third party management. I'm like, what? I go, do you not realize they're part of the problem? Yeah. He goes, well, when you took back management, you didn't have our approval to take back management. I know, but I already had your approval because I'm, I'm the manager. I, my manager company took this deal originally. Yeah, you left us in a pickle. We actually have to go back with, with, with the management company that you were using. I'm like, I'm not gonna do that. I told her, I go, you can go back to your committee right now. I've got four points, I've got my money raised, but there is no way I'm gonna put it back to work knowing that I cannot function with my business model that I've put forth. Yeah. I'm basically throwing money away. If I give you this money, it's gone. Absolutely. So because you can't run it like, at that well, point. I, I understand that, but you know, yeah. this is where they're at. Listen, that that takes a lot of guts to to go in that direction. I told the guy, I go, listen, if we don't come in an agreement, I'm gonna die on this hill. Totally. Because yeah. I'm not gonna makes... give you money if I have to go back. If I yeah, I go, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over again. I Absolutely. can cut back expenses. I will fix this issue. In 30 days, I have had a full staff there when I didn't have a staff before. In 30 days, right. I cut overtime by more than half. Yes. In 30 days, I've reduced con con uh, contract services. Here's yep. my projection. Look where we're at. I go, if you change this out, I cannot meet my plan. So there, there's no, at that point, it's like, I'm not putting good money after bad. It was just That's exactly so. It was a hard, hard call. I've never had to yeah. do that before. I Dude. went to all, if you allow me to tell you what I did. And so I went to the investors and I already had these emergency meetings with them to raise the money. We had this money raised in a week. A whole bunch came in like immediately. People just need a little bit more time to wire things, whatever. You know, if you didn't get it, you're going to get diluted. People were okay with that, you know, but we were going to raise the money. I, I was going to make sure that I was going to cut all asset fees on the deal to help the deal cash flow better. I was going to basically leave my money in the deal. The 858 that I lented, basically forgive it. If I can just save the deal. What else I was gonna do? There was other things that I was willing to do that I told the investors, I'm gonna do this once we get out. Um, you did all the right things. It, it was, they're all the right things is what I felt to do. And I told them that I could not in good conscience take your money when I've already taken 18 million to buy the deal. If I don't believe I can get it back, you know, and it wasn't 100%. like a hundred percent back. It was like a percentage by this date. If we stay in the deal, a bigger percentage by this date. And if we stay in for 10 years, Hey, you'll get all the money back. We all know if you stay in this deal in 10 years, you're, you're going to make your money. Whatever you put, you're going to make it back. You do not lose in 10 years in this business. You rent will keep up eventually. You, you just got to be in the game at the right time when you see either a reduction of expenses, like what happened in COVID, right? Or, or, or like an increase in rents, you know? And, yeah, and so, totally. and so there were agreements. I said, listen, we're, we're going to bail and here's why. And of course you might imagine, you know, people were upset and that was a, I don't know, a three hour call. And every question that came through on the comments, I answered. And I told everybody, I'm absolutely feel horrible what's going on. I don't feel bad for my money. That's, that's the, the chair I, I sit in.
I feel bad for that guy that this was his first deal and he put a hundred thousand in. I did have a lot of, you know, most of my deals is around a 66% retention. So I made a lot of guys, a lot of money and other deals, you know, so I'm happy that they had that, but I offered everybody a personal call. I like, listen, I know you're concerned. I know you're upset. I want you to have, I want to get past this with you. This is a grief moment and we need to get angry and we need to get all questions answered and we need to move on from it. And so I worked with my investor relations guy and I said, listen, I want you to make sure that we have a QR code, you know, the way you use for your podcast and I go schedule time. You know, we'll do it on Wednesdays and Fridays every week until everybody's had their say. Cause I had over 150 investors, you know, yeah. everybody that I don't hear from guys that I do hear from, I'm sure they want to know what about the rest of the portfolio, you know, we'll answer whatever other investments they have. And we did that. And for mm, almost a month, we were on the phone with investors and they were typically 15 to 20 minute phone calls. You know, well, you, you inspired me even to, from, even from when we, when we talk to just like, let it everything open. So we did a, a extremely candid call about the Good. current environment Good. and just let everybody ask whatever questions they Good. possibly had. Cause they have a lot of questions and I want to give them the FaceTime, did the same thing, open it up. And I think if you're in a situation where you're, you know, you're, you're in a, a bad spot with your property, that's one of the best things you can do is, is let people engage with you in the best For way. For a variety of reasons, Garrett, it shows character on your part. You know, my daddy, God, God bless his soul. You know, one of his great expressions was the truth will set you free. You know, and if mm -hmm. you're just candid and honest and open, not internalizing what could happen and just facing the music, you'll feel a lot better. And I characterize Absolutely. it with a relationship that goes bad, right? A relationship that, that you know, that, that you got to deal with, right? You got to have that breakup. You got to go through whatever. You got to face the music. And if you do, you will feel better. I tell you, I have slept so much better after all this was done. And I, because I know that I did everything I could to save the deal. It was not my decision at the end. It was the lenders. And then it was a, it was a partnership decision. Do we want to do this? And of course, the answer was no. Not if you're not running the show. Right. And having everybody an ability to reach out to me privately, not over a call, not being rushed, to have 15, 20 minutes to, you know, basically repeat the same answer, you know, or ask a new question or talk about, you know, the other thing. It gave everybody that closure that we yeah. need to not look back. I don't look back at this deal anymore. What I do is I take the lessons and I make sure that it's not going to happen again. See, this shouldn't have happened. I'm not your typical syndicator, right? I even hate that word. I'm an operator. I've been doing this since 2007 and I've done it at a level that's really high. And my trophies, my skins are on the wall. I, I know what I've created. I feel horrible that I got caught. So if I can at least give a message, a lesson to everybody else so that how they handle it. You know, the best compliment I get from my investors now is the integrity that I showed. This changed everything. When I saw that we were, that not just with this, but the cycle that we're in, I changed my reporting from monthly to weekly. They get a weekly performance update on every single deal. Le leasing traffic, leases, cancels, denials, renewals, what have you. And for the longest time, people were loving it. People are now, oh, it's a little too much. I go, well, good, delete it. Just delete it. You don't, you don't, need, to, you don't need to see it. I want to send it out. You know, and I, I'm being told, man, you do things that nobody else does. You know, and I feel good that I want to be as transparent as I can because, you know, I still think a recession is coming. I don't even think we're in it yet. 
You know, we feel it more personally because we're in the real estate game, but you know, everybody else is going to feel it. Michael. So Robert, you were saying you're, you don't look back on this deal except for what you learned from it. I think that's a great attitude, but looking forward, are you kind of like now on the sidelines kind of going to, you know, lick your wounds a little bit, or do you feel like there's, are you, are you ready to buy? Yeah. So I don't think, first of all, I won't buy until I feel comfortable to buy. Okay. So number one, my portfolio is not in a position for me not to look at it right now. I'm coming off of another management company undoing what I was doing. I had almost a year's reserves in almost every account. And some of them did better than others. Some of them, they're, they're much, much lower, you know? So I've been focusing on replacement reserves that I've had that I've left undone for a long time because I never needed it, you know? And now they're coming in for a rainy day. That rainy day is now. So we're applying for all of those. I've hired, I've rebuilt my management company with an emphasis on my asset team. I now know exactly what I need. I need to have eyes everywhere because I don't trust anybody other than myself, to be honest. My balls are on the line, not anybody else's. I want them to feel like their balls are on the line with me. So we have a lot of internal meetings, but I need to show them as an asset manager how I look at a deal. This is what I'm looking for every single day. I love the weekly stats that I send out because no matter what, I have to look at them because I send them out. Before I send them to my industrial relations guy, I review them. I can see who had zero leases. I go back to the weekly stats. I go back to the monthly stats. I can see, is this a long-term trend? Do I need to make a change on site? I'm in complete control of my portfolio right now, like I haven't been in a long time. And with that, what do you, what do you know? Things are getting better. What do you know? So I have a little bit of ways to go. I've made a commitment to my investors that, because I pause distributions this year, because they're just, it wasn't prudent. Even if you're doing well, it's not prudent. That providing the economy stays what it's supposed to be doing, I will be ready to go come the end of the first quarter. So I will be resuming distributions. I'm using whatever cash is coming in, and I am making sure that I pad my reserves again like I used to. In my very first month, we made $700,000 cash flow. Just from changing the business model. Just from changing it away from, from the uh, other man. From the third party. Insane. I think if it can hurt me, it's going to hurt a lot of people. And it's going to be bad because I don't think they have my, my experience to pull themselves out of it. I think the longer the rates stay high, the more the pain's going to be. The blood's going to be in the streets, but it's not thick enough yet. I think that time comes next year. I think it's right around the time that I'm going to start distributions. I think the the pain, right? You, look, it's just like having a paper bag over your head, right? You only have so much air and people are trying to find ways to poke holes in it to get a little bit of air. But if insurance keeps rising, we're after. If rates yeah. keep staying up, the cap rate's going to stay up. That loan you have is going to come due and you're going to be in trouble. I've got a total of nine deals that I have insurance exposure on. I've put two of them to bed. I've got seven more. That's my focus is those seven deals. I got two that I think will refine the next 60 days, a third that'll be in the next 60 to 90 days. And the rest of them are going to have to come in 2024 because I still need some seasoning to get the collections work. I'm glad they pause rates. So I, I don't bleed anymore out. I do think rates are going to come down, but I think it's going to be a little too late for a lot of guys. And I cannot in good faith buy a deal if I'm not ready from a portfolio standpoint to acquire another deal. 
I got to be very careful. I've got to show my, I have to regain my investor's trust that I know what I'm doing every day. So I enjoy the opportunity to be here with you because even though I've had these calls with them, there's a lot of bullshit people out there who, who aren't even in the deal, who have no idea what's going on. You know, I didn't get a single, I, I think of all the 150 people that were in that deal, I think I really had just one that was just downright, down, downright irate. You know, that it was like, wow, everything else was very manageable. Everybody understood their big boys. Many of them, again, 66% retention. You know, they were invested in other deals in the past. They're happy to see me in the chair again, right? They've yeah. made their money. So if you look at this like a mutual fund, yeah, I've lost a little bit over here, but I've made my money over here, right? So, yeah. I mean, you're, you're completely transparent about exactly what happened. And and they know that, and so they have no no reason to be, be irate at you, which which I think's and that's incredible. Rob, how can people reach out to you if they want to get a hold of you? Absolutely right. So I love sharing information in whatever way I can, right? So podcasts, I love this. I, when you offer the opportunity, I jumped on it because I know you guys got a great a great attention a great attention on you guys. So I want to be able to share this story. It's actually the first one. I've got another one booked with with another big 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 player, and I'm looking forward to sharing that story. But you know, you find me on Instagram. I mean, it's all on social media. Either you live here or you don't exist, and that's your own properties. That's your own personal brand. So you can find me at Apartment Rockstar. You can find us on YouTube, where you know education is free. I, I'm very transparent. I don't really hide things back. You know, I, I want to be as honest as I can. I know operationally we're rebuilding all of our processes, rebuilding all of our systems. My whole asset manager, we created a process tree from when a, a prospect applies to every little bit of the company that they should be touching. And every one of those things has to work right and we have to make money. But I can't see all 23 of my assets. But if I give my asset guys six, seven deals and that's all they're doing is looking at this, did they do their knock? Did they come over here? Uh, did the rent charge import? Go back 90 days. How many how many move outs have we had in the last 90 days from, from people that moved in 90 days ago? Are they doing their snap? Are you guys doing snaps? You know what snapped is? We, we have snapped, yeah, to save people okay. from like the, the fraud and stuff like that. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that we is have like snapped, we have knocked, we have all the all those good. all the yeah, tricks. So, right. Fantastic. But the thing is, you guys are just one or two guys. You've got to make sure that you have a bunch of mini me's that do it your way, that hold them to the hold the property managers accountable remember property management it's just a body right they're like the walking to oh i gotta go out i gotta eat something right <laughs> it's the brain that they're missing yeah. the brain is the asset management side it tells yeah. them which direction to go it tells them you know to run to crawl to to jog to sprint you've got to know these things so somebody has to be watching them i don't trust people in the chair because I think people naturally are not going to be 100%. You've got to weed through your property management company. You got to find out who the weak links are. We rank all of our 23 deals. There's a bottom eight every single month, every single week. And we, I check these. Okay, time to go. It's been 90 days. I told you it's been 90 days, time to go. So I think when you've gone through crisis like this, I think when you've gone, when your balls are on the line, I think when you got hit by that paddle, you, through, you do things differently. And I think you take out the emotion in this, right? Because real estate's easy, people are difficult. Well, it's because you let people be difficult. Get rid yeah. of people that don't work right for you and bring in the right kind of people that do it your way and watch what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this is unbelievable, man. Everything that you said, we typically go a little short on the pack podcast. I had to have you 
share this amazing knowledge with everybody. So I'm, I'm, we're so happy to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, guys. I look forward to reaching out with you guys again soon. We'll see you, Rob. Bye-bye. Man, what a story that was, huh? Man, I'll tell you what. I haven't known Rob for very long, but I can just tell right away that the guy is, he's just extremely transparent. He's, he's very honest. And that was a treat to be able to listen to him talk about all the things that, that have been going on and a lot of operators are feeling right now, but maybe are not, are not speaking on, or, or maybe, you know, are trying to hide under the rug. I mean, this is, this is real right now. This is a reality. And, you know, I, I loved how he was talking about how, you know, he went into, first of all, how he, this, the thing that he mentioned about the being a salesperson that gets cut, I was literally having a conversation with an EO member today that a salesperson got cut and there, and that is a real thing, right? Like, so, so having, going from that to getting into multifamily, that's why people do it. Now we're in a time where you got into multifamily, maybe you made that jump and things are not, are not working in your favor right now in the economy. So being able to touch on some of that stuff that that he did, I think, was really powerful. Yeah, I think, and, and just everybody listening and watching this right now, we got to put what's happening in perspective right now. There's really two time frames that we have to distinguish. One is anything that was bought 12 to 18 months ago, and this is exactly what what he's talking about. We've talked about in this podcast as well. These are existing operators who bought something in 12 to 18 months, right before the rate hikes, and you can tell that just someone. It was clear to me that Robert is probably one of the better operators. He's very hands on. He's in the weeds. He knows what's going on. And even the best or the better operators cannot navigate, you know, a five-point interest rate hike. It's just, it's too much. It's something that you can't overcome even with good operations. And that's the frustrating part, Gary. That's kind of, you know, we're dealing with as well. So, so it's the looking in the past deals. Okay. So you're hearing a lot about stuff that was bought in 12 to 18 months. And we're really focused on that in this episode. What we have to now distinguish is any deal we buy from here on out. It's a completely different animal. And so if you have never bought an apartment building deal, you don't have to worry about all this stuff, right? It, it doesn't really apply. If you're buying, we close on Ballantyne, talk about how that deal was significantly different than any deal that was bought it, 18 it, to 24 months ago. It was under contract literally for $10 million more than what we put it under contract for. So what you're finding is in the, in the market, you're able to pick up deals now for below replacement costs, which is insane in most in most areas, even now. And so, yeah, the landscape is different. And and one thing that you're, we're seeing already is these developers. So first of all, there's been an oversupply of development, people building a ton of these apartment complexes, and cities are starting to, to stop that, or, or developers are starting to, to stop building because when they go to deliver a project, let's say it costs them, you know, 150k a unit to do a project, they're trying to sell it for 250 or 300. They can't get that. They can only get like 140 or 130. So it's just there's not a lot of profit in there because of, of the, how interest rates have slammed the market. So those are the types of opportunities that are that are coming. Yeah, that's right. So so things are. I mean, they're about 15, 20 percent below where they were March of last year. Right? You have you're getting a price discount. That doesn't make the deal good per se, because a deal still has to work given existing rents and expense structures and stuff like that. But the point is, that's one thing that's major different is it's a lot lower. The second thing is we're being underwritten with very high interest rates, right? We're getting interest rates that are, you know, three points higher than they were 18, 24 months ago, right? And so 
we're coming into uh, a totally different cost structure. It's almost like 12 months ago, 18 months ago, was like the top of the market. March of 2022, top of the market, right? Now, some people say, are we in the bottom of the market yet? Well, it remains to be seen. However, I would say we're probably down to the bottom part of the market within 12 months. Like, that's insane. Normally, these things take like seven years, slow market cycles, right? This one, boom. Within 12 months, we're kind of at the bottom of the market. And so, therefore, given the right opportunity, I think, Robert, it has to be right for him, right? So we're going to start seeing some distressed assets coming on the market. And not only are we going to have access to uh, distressed opportunities, but the way we're underwriting deals is essentially at a very high interest rate, right? Very high cap rate. If we're going to use, we may or may not use floating rate debt. Let's say we do, we're going to get very expensive fixed rate caps on these things. So the way we're going into these deals now and the opportunity we're going to see are vastly different. Therefore, in my opinion, it's now a really good time to start looking for opportunities. And my advice to you is don't try to time the market. Because here's what's happening, Gary. We talked about this uh, off air is that we're still underwriting deals and making offers. Now, we're already starting to see the market shift a little bit week by week, but you're not seeing this thing in the news. Your broker's not going to call you. You're, you're only going to get this stuff in the off-market world because you're in already engaged with your broker. The broker's saying, hey, there's this owner that I think they're going to need to sell. I think here's what we need to come in at. And we start making these off-market. And you'll, you'll miss that entirely if you wait until the market recovers. Because if you wait until the market recovers, guess what? It'll be too hot. And then you have to wait till, till it cools again. You're never going to get into game. So now is a really, really good time to kind of get educated and, and start looking at the market and start doing some deals. So hopefully that didn't scare you. It should only help you if you already have, if you already have deals. And it helps very helpful to, to hear from Robert what he did. If you don't have any deals right now, it's irrelevant to you. I mean, it could be a cautionary tale of how to survive such a downturn, but really what you're looking for is opportunity to get into deals and more distressed deals from operators who are not nearly as good as Robert is. So hopefully you were not discouraged from that, or you're very much encouraged to get into these this opportunity of multifamily. So let's go get a deal done, Garrett. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by downloading Michael's free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Head over to themichaelblock.com slash ebook to get the free training.